Inconvenient. Adjective. Causing trouble, difficulties, or discomfort. Truth. Noun. The quality or state of being true. When something causes us trouble, gives us difficulty, or produces discomfort, we avoid it. But what happens when we can't? What happens when those things come from our relationship with God? What happens when those things that are so inconvenient are also unavoidably true? This summer, we take a look at truths that we'd rather avoid. Truths about human dignity, sexuality, relationships, our work, and our money. This summer, we explore inconvenient truths. All right, well, kids ages uh, three to kindergarten can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship if you'd like. The rest of you, um, go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 14 if you've got them. Pretty quick verse this morning, but, but important. So um, if you don't have your Bibles with you, they're, they're, uh, the text is in your order of worship. It's really short. Or um, if you don't own a Bible and you're here this morning, we'd love to give you one. There's a bunch on the back table. That's our gift to you. Grab one of those. Uh, we, we think it's important for you to have it. Um, in fact, it's going to be good for you to, as you have it in front of you this morning, just to make sure that you know that I'm not just making this stuff up, because that would be wasting all of our times. So let me welcome you again, um, and let me just say again that if you were here this morning uh, because of VBS, I want to especially welcome you. Um, Holy Cross does not take for granted the fact that you entrusted your kids to us, and we've counted as a privilege to help them encounter, know, and show Jesus. So thank you for that. Uh, as a church this summer, mo- most of you know, but we've been looking at the fact that we don't always like what the Bible has to say to us. That um, even, even as Christians, we can find many of the Bible's truths to be inconvenient. And so this, seri- this summer, we've been looking at a series of these inconvenient truths to, to just take a look at them a little closer. And this week, we look at one of the most troubling for our culture, um, even for us at times, uh, troubling the claims of Jesus, especially his exclusive claims. In the Bible, God, uh, as he reveals himself, and especially in Jesus, doesn't seem to suffer rivals. It doesn't seem to be something he's real big on. Uh, in fact, all of his claims are exclusive. Why is that? Well, that's what we're going to take to the Bible and find out. So if you have your place in John 14, our, our habit here is to stand as the, the word is read before we preach. This is God's word. I'm going to give it a little bit of context. John 14, 6 is, is the, the verse that we're going. I'm going, to, I'm going to give it to you from verse 5, okay? Thomas, that is doubting Thomas. Everyone, he's notorious, right? Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to this time, we ask that you would make claims, not just claims from your word, but claims on us. By your spirit, would you come and would you open our hearts to hear from you? Would you open our eyes to see you and and open our minds to understand? We need you. And so we ask that you would speak to us. Wherever we're at this morning, whether we've been walking with Jesus for as long as we can remember or whether we are um, walking into this place not knowing him, we pray that you would meet us where we are and preach your gospel to us. 
This all we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. This idea, the, the idea of exclusivity in our culture today is kind of on the outs. I mean, think of it. We like everything in a spectrum. We don't, we don't like digital stuff. We like, we like uh, analog, right? Um, not binary. We like analog. We like everything on a spectrum, whether we're talking about, uh, just to use current events, whether we're talking about gender, whether we're talking about, apparently, race. Uh, we even like complexity in our movie heroes, right? I mean, what's, what sells today are the, the dark the dark counter-heroes who, who uh, have complexity in them. Now, there are still some things that exclusivity seems to stick to. Romantic relationships, for example, are still something, unless you're, um, unless you're into the show Sister Wives. But uh, unless you're into that, mo- most, most of us still think that we, ex- we should expect exclusivity in our romantic relationships. But religion, now that's something we don't think should have exclusive claims on it, right? Now, if you've been coming to Holy Cross for a while, you probably have heard us talk about the fact that everyone makes exclusive claims, right? You know, the guy who uses that old analogy that all religions are like the blind guy kind of trying to describe the elephant, um, that, that even that guy um, is claiming that he can see the whole elephant. He's claiming an exclusive claim. Now, I say all that knowing that that's, that's not exactly what we're going to talk about this morning, okay? Um, it, I'd, but maybe you're here this morning and you've never considered that. I'd love to talk to you more about that fact. The fact that the champion of diversity who rails against absolute truth claims is actually making their own set of truth claims. I'd love to talk to you about that. Just not what we're going to talk about this morning. What I want to do this morning, though, is show why it is that Jesus makes such outrageous claims. Not the fact that they happen. We're going to get, that's a given, okay? Not just from Jesus, but from all of us. We, we make these kind of exclusive claims. That's a given. But why? Why does Jesus make such outrageous claims as he does here in John 14? Why is Christianity so stubborn in this notion that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God? Because you see, I think most of us probably believe that the reason that is is because we've, you know, you've heard uh, Christians kind of willy-nilly throw a few verses at you and they think, well, this is just based on a few things. But in fact, in fact, there's an internal logic to the Christian faith that goes well beyond that. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at this in two ways. We're going to look at the fact of exclusivity and then we're going to look at the logic of it. Okay? The fact of it and then the logic of it. And there's, a, there's an outline if that's going to help you keep track. If not, just leave it. Okay? Let's begin with the fact of exclusivity by talking about what it isn't first and foremost. Okay? And this is important because I, there's a good bit of cultural baggage, perhaps even historical arrogance attached to the disdain for Christianity's exclusive claims. So let's, let's clear the air, shall we? First and foremost, the exclusive claims of Christianity are not based on an ignorance of cultural diversity. Now, we often can think that, right? We can think the notion of absolute truth as opposed to kind of relative truth. This is true for me, but it's not true for them over there. We can, we can often think that that kind of notion of absolute truth can only stand as long as we remain ignorant of other perspectives. And so we think that Christianity, making exclusive claims, even in the ancient world, must obviously have sprouted in, an er- in a time in which such, such uh, other perspectives weren't as present. That's simply not true. Let's remember where Jesus is when he says this to Thomas. Jesus is in a conquered territory of the Roman Empire in the first century. 
And in that first century, the Roman Empire had more gods and more religious perspectives than we can imagine. One of the, one of the first Christian missionaries, this guy named Paul, uh, you'd love him. He went from uh, murderer of Christians to missionary for Christ uh, and, and ended up writing a lot of the New Testament. Shows that none of us are uh, too far from God, right? So in one of his first journeys, he, he walks through the city of Athens and there's so many statues to all of the gods that it grieves him. In fact, he sees... He sees that they're covering their bases so much that they have a god, they have a statue to a god that they don't know the name of. And they're like, just in case, right? Like, like that, that's at the bottom of it. Now, literally it says to an unknown god, but we would say just in case, right? You know, in case you missed one. Um, Christianity sprouted up in a far more religiously diverse atmosphere than ours. So the absolute claims, the exclusive claims of Jesus are not based on the fact that Christians, or Jesus in, in fact, was somehow ignorant of religious perspectives, of religious pluralism. Secondly, these claims are not based on tribalism or racism. What I mean by that is that we can often think that these claims are a kind of imperialism, right? That's, that's a strong cultural narrative in, the, in the, some corners of our society. That, that, um, that we're, when we make these exclusive claims, what we're saying is we're better than you. We're better than you because our tribal God, who happens to be the white Jesus, um, as opposed to Allah or Shiva, is better than your tribal God, right? That, that, that's often the narrative that gets attached to it. Again, the crazy thing historically about Christianity is that the very reasons that people started calling the followers of Jesus Christians is because they had no other way to describe them. That, that in fact, in the earliest church, like the Romans were very clear on, understood very poignantly, tribal deities. And they all kind of existed together. And they, so they would have a, a tribal deity for this, tribal de- deity for this, and these people and this people group worship this thing. And if you were a poor person, if you were a slave, you probably worship this God. But the Christians, see the problem with Christians is that their worship of God through Jesus transcended all of those boundaries and they had no other way to describe them. They're like, what do, we, what do we call this group of people? I can't call them Scythians. I can't call them barbarians. I can't call them Romans because they're all of these. We'll have to call them Christians. So these claims aren't based on some notion of tribal religion. Third, they are not based on ancient religiously intolerant people. This is, the, this is the claim that comes about because of our historical arrogance. You see, we tend to think that we are so very much smarter than people of the past. That tired old narrative of progress that I think, I thought we all smashed with two world wars, um, alas. Here's the thing. Ancient people were not religiously intolerant. They just weren't. Romans as a society were very much favorable to letting your God in. You could just join theirs. If we want to look to a model of what religious pluralism looks like, look to the Roman Empire. Because they did it well. All of their gods could all come in and join together. Christianity sprung into a world in which religion was part of civic life. Being a good citizen, being patriotic, meant having a religious life. And what you worshipped really didn't matter. Even if you didn't believe it, you at least needed to worship So the point, again, is that ancient people were very religiously tolerant, as long as it didn't upset civil order, which was what they thought Christianity would do. 
But last, and lastly, so, so it's, not, it's not based on a, a lack of understanding of religious perspective. They're not, they're not based on tribalism or racism. It's not based on um, ancient religiously intolerant people. And lastly, the exclusive claims of Christianity are not based on a misinterpretation of the Bible. You know, sometimes we can often be fooled into thinking, because we've read blogs, we've read someone who, who decided to become religiously astute by reading some of the Bible, and they write their blogs, and we, we read these blogs, and, and we think that uh, the Bible doesn't actually teach this. This is just a few verses taken out of context. I mean, Rick, you did just read one verse for the sermon, right? I know. The problem is, this is, again, not true. These claims... The, the exclusive claims of Christianity, of, of the entire Bible, they pervade it. They pervade the Old Testament, the words of Jesus, and the letters of the apostles. They go all the way through. In fact, they are the only logical conclusion to the entirety of the story, which hopefully we'll see today. So that's what it isn't. That's what this exclusivity isn't. They aren't about cultural imperialism or ancient ignorant biases or biblical ignorance. So what is this fact of exclusivity? Well, Jesus states it for us right at the end of this verse. Okay, so look down at that. He says this. No one comes to the Father if not through me. That's bold, isn't it? But notice what he didn't say. What he didn't say is, uh, you, and then this is important again because of how we normally will take these kind of things. What Jesus didn't say is no one comes to the Father except through my teachings. No one comes to the Father except through my morality, except through my cultural preferences. That's not what he said. He says that the road to the Father, that is to God, comes through him. Through him. Now this is important, so listen close if you can. Whether you consider yourself a Christian in this place or not, not everyone in here is, and that's, that's great, that's cool. But no matter where you are this morning, we can all become very confused about this. This is the one of the things that makes Christianity unique amongst all the religious diversity in our world. You see, in Islam, Muhammad is revered as the prophet But you come to Allah by the teachings, by his commands, by the pillars, not through Muhammad. In Buddhism, you come to nirvana, whether or not you would actually want such a thing or not is another question, but you come to nirvana through Buddha's teaching and his example. In in New Age perspectives, you come to bliss as you um, realize that that all distinctions aren't real and that, that, uh, that, in fact... You're as much God as the chair is. Like that, that's how you, it's, again, it's through teachings. In Christianity, though, it's through Jesus. Not through his commands, but through him. Now, this is key. The accusation of cultural arrogance, that these exclusive claims are just based on cultural arrogance, that that might actually stick if it were based, if, if we said that you can't come to the Father but through certain culturally shaped morals. The accusation of tribalism might stick if Christianity said, okay, now you have to adopt our culture. You have to become part of our tribe to be right with God. Instead, though, these exclusive claims aren't wrapped up in those things. They're not wrapped up in things you do. They're wrapped up in a person. Think about that. What is it that would allow Jesus uh, to make an exclusive claims not, not based on what he said, but just based on him? Not based on doing what he did, but just based on him. Jesus claims right here and in other places in the Bible, I could have picked a bunch, we just just chose one for the sake of expediency, that coming to the Father, coming to God, is either through him or not at all. 
Now, we may not like that. Now, my guess is there's some of us who, who really don't like that. But the fact that we don't like it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't say it, nor does it mean that Christianity doesn't believe it. It just means we don't like it. It's inconvenient. Because most of us recall at that statement, don't we? In our culture, it is grossly arrogant to claim such a thing. We are a culture that thinks that the individual has the right of choosing for themselves what is true and false when it comes to religion. And apparently, again, according to recent events, many other things you can choose for yourselves. Now, we don't ever look at the arrogance of thinking that I can define reality for myself, right? We don't ever think about that arrogance. Like, I am the shaper of all that is real. Now, that's not an arrogant thing. But these other things are arrogant. So why, why is it that Jesus makes such a claim? Truly, Jesus makes this claim because he is the only thing that makes sense of the story that the Bible tells. So now let's look at the logic of exclusivity. Because first, these exclusive tra- claims are based on the, on the truth of one God. You see, the Bible teaches that there is one and only one God. Okay? God is not one among many. This means that God is not the God of one group, but another group has their own God. No, there is but one God who created all things, including us. Now, in saying that, that's not a huge problem for pluralistic worldviews, right? That's not a big deal. I mean, we come back to the blind dudes and the elephant, right? All of us are just trying our best. We're blind, we're grabbing the trunk, we're like, I think it's like a snake, and others of us are like, it's a tree, and we're grabbing a leg, and you know, that, that's not a problem for all of that. But the Bible also says that God is not a force or a distant power, but a person. And here's the key. God is a person who wants to be known. He wants to be known. You see, the idea that, that God is the elephant and we're all blind, it assumes a couple of things, right? It assumes that the God, the elephant, is just sitting there, letting blind dudes grope all over him, right? Not saying anything, just kind of going, like, all right, woo, that's uncomfortable. Like, this is, what he, this is what he's doing. And so that's one. And two, that someone, not the blind guys, but someone from outside of the blind guys can actually see the whole elephant. But the Bible, though, says that God wants to be known. God speaks. God relates. God reveals himself. And Christians believe, because the Bible says it, that this is what the Bible is. It's God's self-revelation. It's not a guess. The Bible isn't like some, some pious dude's best guess. It's actually God's self-revelation. He's revealing who he is in language that we will understand. Okay? But again, this necessarily isn't a problem, right? Because, of course, we're narrowing things down a bit. We're narrowing the field. If you're keeping score, we're getting a little narrow here. Because to say that there is but one God narrows the field from perspectives that claim that there isn't a God, right? Whether they're Buddhist or atheist. To say that God is a person who wants to be known, who has revealed himself, narrows the field again by, by uh, you know, excluding those perspectives that believe God is a force, or God's unknowable, like New Age perspectives, like uh, deism, some forms of Hinduism. But we still have all the perspectives that do claim that God has revealed himself. Maybe he's just revealed himself in different ways than he did to Christians. So why is Jesus making these claims? Well, that's certainly possible. But again, when people give accounts of themselves, 
And they tell someone, Here, here's, here's me, right? There's a consistency to it, not a contradiction. The Bible claims that, it is God's, that the Bible is, in fact, God's authoritative self-revelation. Even though there's plenty in there, if you've actually read it, there's plenty in there that we think is either beneath God, like God becoming flesh, going through life, just like you and me, or whether there's just stuff that we just can't seem to put together, like how can God be both merciful and just at the same time, right? So this exclusive claim of Jesus, that no one comes to the Father but through him, is based on the truth which Jesus himself held, that the Father of whom he speaks is the one creator God of all the world who has revealed himself through his word and, in fact, through Jesus himself. That's the first leg of the stool. The second deals with this threefold problem because Jesus says that no one comes to the Father, but, but why is that? Because you say, see, when you say that no one is coming to the Father, that assumes that we're not with Him now, right? That coming kind of presupposes some kind of distance. And, and I think most of us probably get that. You know, for most of us, we think that if there is a God, what He wants from us is to be good. I don't know whether that's just cultural, that's just our American thing or, or not. But we generally think God wants us to be good. And that's where the argument stems, right? Because who are you to define what good is? How do you have the, the final say on what good is? And maybe how good is good enough? Maybe I'm good enough. In other words, we tend to think the problem is behavior. But again, this is, a, this is again, and if you've been at Holy Cross, you've heard me say this before. This is where Christianity is unique. Because Christians, uh, you know, say that the problem isn't that. But that's really easy to miss. You see, the Bible says that God made us for relationship with him. That's what we were made for. He placed humanity in this garden to spread it across the world, to, to enter, we've talked about this the last two weeks, to enter into his creative life and to, and to see his reign spread throughout all of creation. But in doing that, we were meant to be dependent on him. We were made to be dependent. That is so, you know, that, that's what this whole story of the, the fruit tree in the garden is about. Maybe you've heard that story, you know, Adam, Eve, fruit tree, snake. It's so confusing to us, right? Like, what... Why would God care what kind of fruit they ate? What is the deal with this magical fruit, right? Why, why is there a fruit that does magical things? Listen, here's the thing. The fruit wasn't magical. In the story, God never tells them, if you eat this, you're going to know right from wrong. The snake tells them that, not God. That tree was a place of testing. It said this, would we depend on God to define reality for us? as we were made to? Or would we seek to be independent from him? Would we look to him to define what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, or would we need to be our own authority? Would we go to that and try and get that? You see, in the end, we know what happened. We believed a lie that God wasn't for us, that God didn't love us, that God was holding us back, that he couldn't be trusted, and so we betrayed him. That's what sin is. It's betraying God. We broke relationship with God, and when we did, there were three consequences that came to that. First, we became alienated from God, separated from him. The, the prophet Isaiah, one of the, one of the uh, writers in the Old Testament, says, says this. He says, 
Your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And earlier in his, in his book, he says this, you honor me with your mouth, but your hearts are far from me. In other words, relationship with God has been broken. Relationship has been broken. We are independent from God now. You see, this is why behavior doesn't help. Behavior doesn't affect, like it doesn't, being good has nothing to do with relationship. There are very good, very moral people who are just as alienated from God as those with bad behavior. We need reconciliation because we're alienated. Second, we became corrupt. Now, that's a word that we normally associate with politicians, right? Um, for whatever reason. That, that's not exactly what we mean here. What this means is that whereas in the beginning we needed to be convinced of a lie, we needed to be convinced that God didn't love us, that, God, that we can't trust him, that he's not for us, now that lie is our assumption. In other words, sin isn't something we do, it's something we are. By nature, all of us, every one of us, is independent from God. And that independence touches every aspect of our being. Not just a part, like, here's the independent part of my brain up here, but my foot, not so much. No, all of us, every aspect of who we are is bent away from God. There's no part of us untouched by sin. So being good doesn't deal with your corruption. I mean, you can change your behavior, right? I know some of you are really good at it. Some of you, not so much. But some of you are really good at changing your behavior. How good are you at changing your nature? Yeah, not so much, right? So there's alienation, there's corruption. Lastly, there's guilt. Now, most of us get this one, but let me put a little spin on it if I can. When you and I think about guilt, we automatically think of a law court, right? Some of you especially so, because it's your job. Like, we automatically think of a law court. And, and that's, that's, there's good reason for that. The Bible does that, okay? But here's the thing. Our law courts are based on, in fact, they even brag about the fact that a violation is against a code. Right? Against a statute. Against a, a rule. But our guilt, according to the Bible, isn't for violating codes so much as betraying a person. Because the law of God is not arbitrary. That's what we often think of it. It's like, it's like uh, the 10 o'clock curfew. Where'd you come up with that one, Dad? I don't know. Sounded good. You know, 10 o'clock curfew. It's like, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. Where'd you come up with that? I don't know. Sounded good. No, not at all. Like, God's law is based on his character. And so when we say, I don't like that rule, what we're saying is, I don't like that part of you. That part of you that keeps promises, hate it. Not for me. That part of you that gives life instead of taking it, hate it. Not for me. That, that part of you that, that, um, gives, that, that puts glory where it's supposed to be, instead of on me, don't like it. And so guilt, that guilt doesn't come because of some arbitrary penalty for breaking the speed limit. It is the weight that comes from betraying a person. God lovingly created us for himself, gave us everything we have, and we have used it all for us. Again, this is why changing your behavior doesn't fix things. Your good behavior doesn't erase the wrongs you've done. If I go and, and, and kind of keep the rules for a week, it doesn't somehow erase the rule breaking I did the previous week or day or second. Look, if you're married and you commit adultery and cheat on your spouse, buying chocolates, doing the housework, or buying a diamond necklace does not make that betrayal go away. It can't. 
Someone has got to bear the weight of that betrayal. Someone has got to bear the weight of our guilt. And this is where Jesus comes in, friends. This is where the logic meets its conclusion in the one Savior. And this is why Jesus makes these exclusive claims. Jesus is the one who can actually deal with these problems. And here's how this works right here in this passage, okay? Let's just take, let's just take the words that he says. First, Jesus says, I am the way. Which means that he is the way back from our alienation from God. You see, Jesus isn't just a good dude. He's not just a good dude, a great teacher, a good, good moral exemplar. He's God. He's God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. And when we place our faith in Him, depend on Him, we are returning to dependence on God. Behaving yourself isn't returning to God. Behaving yourself isn't dependence. It's yourself. It's still independent. Jesus is the way. Jesus also says, I am the truth. That lie, right? That, that lie that God doesn't love us has corrupted every aspect of our being. But, but when the Spirit of God works in us and, and give, makes us new so that we can place our faith in Jesus, we see that He is the truth. God doesn't just love us. He loves us beyond our imagining. He, he loves us while we were enemies, pursues us while we hated Him, chases us while we run from Him. We didn't go looking for God. He came looking for us, initiated relationship with us, and provides for our reconciliation with Him. Jesus proves it. He is the truth. And Jesus says, I am the life. See, that guilt that we bear from our betrayal of God, the Bible calls death. Not just the cessation of bodily function, right? But, but a spiritual death. Bearing the weight of our betrayal of God for eternity. What Jesus himself calls hell. But Jesus came so that we can be forgiven. But, but here's the deal. I, I think culturally all of us, yeah, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. Da, da, da. We don't understand what that means. Okay? Forgiveness is always costly. Here's what I mean. If you steal my car and yet want to remain my friend, right? Stay in a, in a close, trusting relationship with me, there are really two options, okay? Either you can give me my car back or pay for it in case you've already sent it to the chop shop, okay? You can either give me my car or pay for it because you've, you've chopped up into a million pieces, in which case we call that justice. You have now paid for what you did. Or I can forgive you which means that I'm still out of car and have to go buy a new one out of my own pocket. I bear the weight of your offense and not you. If you do it, we call it justice. If I do it, we call it forgiveness. And that is where the cross comes in. You know, many of us think, why can't God just forgive? I don't know what the big deal is. He did forgive. That's exactly what he did. In Jesus, forgiveness does not make an offense go away. Nothing can make an offense go away. And you know this because you've had to deal with betrayals in your own life. You know what happens when someone close to you turns on you. And how hard that is. How hard it is to trust them again. And you know it's risk. If I trust them, they might do it again. Yes, you're bearing the weight of that. 
This is what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is about restored relationship. And so what you're asking when you say, why can't God God just forgive? It's really, why can't he just leave me alone with no consequences for doing everything I want? We don't want him. But we also don't want to deal with what it would mean for us not to have him. But Jesus came, friends, so that God could bear the weight of your betrayal. He could bear the weight of my betrayal. He died in our place, bore hell on the cross, not just in physical death, but in being separated from the Father and literally becoming sin in our place. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because he bore in our place for us our alienation, our corruption, and our guilt. He took what you and I deserve so that we could have what only he deserves. Reconciled relationship with God. So, friends, this is why Jesus can make these exclusive claims. He's the only one that deals with the problem. He's the only one that deals with the problem. Every other system comes back to this. Uh, It comes back to, do this. Go do this. Christianity says, this is done. And this is why Jesus says you have to come through him and not some set of rules to come back to God. To be healed of our corruption. To have our death dealt with. In Jesus and in him alone is all that possible. Not your morality. Not your rule keeping. Not your religiosity. Not your loving acceptance or your tolerance of others. It is only Jesus that makes us right with God. So come to him. Maybe you're not grasping the weight of this. If the Bible is true, then you and I have deeply offended God. Deeply offended him. We've betrayed him and turned from him. And like I said, in the, in the scriptures, it's not seen like a judge sitting on a bench who kind of doesn't really care if you broke the speed limit or did this. He's doing his job. And he's like, sorry, the facts say this, guilty. It's more like a spouse who's, had, who's been cheated on. And not only did he say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to still be... He chased you down. Was willing to to bear the weight of what you did in your place to welcome you home. It is only through Jesus that makes us right with God. So come to him. Friends, let him be your way, your truth, and your life. Would you pray with me? Father, no matter where we're at this morning, and I'm sure there are many of us in many different places, all of us really are in the same place. Apart from you, we are lost. Apart from the work of Jesus, we are lost. And I don't care whether, Lord, you know some of us in this room, our lives are a train wreck. Others of us in this room, our lives look so pretty on the outside, we could win a contest. And it doesn't matter. Without Jesus, we're lost. Equally lost. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning we would wrestle with the inconvenient truth that it is only through Christ that we can be right with you. Not through Christ and our goodness, not through Christ and our tolerance, not through Jesus and our openness to others, but through Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would impress that upon us in such a way this morning that we would place our faith in him. Some of us have thought we've done that before and we haven't. Others of us would never even have considered it. And I pray that for all of us, you would help us to place our faith in Christ, whether for the first time or for the millionth time. 
and so be reconciled with you. Thank you, God, that you are a God who lovingly pursues those who have offended you, chases us down, and draws us back to yourself. We need you. And we ask that you would do all these things for the sake of your great name. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.